Along came the financial crisis in 2008-2009. Um, Swiss franc strengthened against sterling 50%. Margin call on line one, I suddenly owed the bank over £3 million I borrowed, and I had to pay, to stop losing the properties, I had to pay in the region of a million pounds margin call. So it was a total disaster. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To reduce risk in your life, go to myworstinvestmentever.com today and take the risk reduction assessment I created from the lessons I've learned from more than 500 guests. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Martin. Terpolowski. Martin, are you ready to join our mission? Absolutely, boss. Yeah. So let me tell the audience a bit about you. Martin has spent over 20 years in Asia, where he lived for the majority in Tokyo and Hong Kong and was working in finance. In 2018, he moved to Indonesia and was the angel investor and founder of technology company, Bumi Bartra Technology. The company now has over 150 staff and is growing rapidly. They provide a location, analytics, and big data platform to help large international and local companies make better data-driven decisions. BVT, as it's also called, will be one of the leading deep tech companies in Southeast Asia in the next three years with plans to launch a successful IPO. Martin, that's very exciting. Take a minute and tell us about the value that you bring to the world. Well, I think I think what I do is um, I'm always trying. I'm a, I try different things, and um, I'm always I never give up. I mean, I'm doing something that I never thought I'd ever get into. I'm also not a technology expert, but then the sheer like never give up attitude has driven me to actually start this company. When everybody said, you know, you can't do technology, you've got no experience in technology, and actually take it to be one of the fastest growing companies in the country. So I think the never say die attitude. And, you know, list the effort that I put in, I think it rubs off on my staff. We have a very good retention rate. We work good together. And I've also done that in my previous jobs where I've turned up in different countries, five different countries altogether. And basically through real sheer bloody mindedness, I've absolutely made sure I succeed. Never say die, ladies and gentlemen. What a great thing to be known for. So that's that's exciting to learn about. And maybe you just tell us a little bit about kind of the applications that that the software and the, the company is, is performing, just so we understand it. So maybe it maybe yeah. it applies to something we know. So basically, yeah, we um, we're in the big data space, but you say I never was an expert in this kind of thing, but I looked at a few opportunities that were working globally, and it's like big data linked to geographical position. So I think in a country like Indonesia, which is logistically challenged, you have a huge amount of data but actually it's all over the place in spreadsheets. It's not visualized correctly. So we're basically, we map big data, all kinds of data, and we put it down to street level, telco data, um, demographic data, thematic data, any kind of data that can be put into a map. We actually put it there for allow companies to make better decisions. We also have algorithms within that system. So it's an end-to-end system, including GIS technology, geographical information system technology, and big data spatial, and then also machine learning, where basically the big companies like, oh, we have Kraft Heinz as a client, we have BAT as a client, 
local big companies like XXI Cinema, Janji Jiwa Coffee, Bukalapak, and they use us to actually, if they have a, they know who their target market is. We're not consultants. They basically put their target market into, as parameters into our system, and our system then predicts to them where they should build their business next. We have more data than any other company in Indonesia. We're by far the biggest in, the, in this market, yeah. So it sounds like location, the location aspect of it is super valuable because you're able to triangulate a lot of data to be able to say, here's a hotspot, here's yeah. 10 hotspots throughout the city or whatever that correspond Absolutely. to your needs. That hotspot will be different depending on what a company's you know, target yeah, market is so, like. Absolutely. So simply put, like the biggest coffee shop in Indonesia, when they started working with us, they were they're basically my first client. I knew the founder and he was very, he took a, a leap of faith into us where many people didn't believe we could do this. And they've become, they, they had 200 stores at the time and now they have a thousand. And the way they've done this is they've just looked at the commonalities of what succeeded in Jakarta and they've backed that into, they put that into our system and the, our algorithm has spat out which street they should open in secondary cities like Milan, Solo, that kind of thing. So yeah, it's all about the data, but it's also about visualizing the data to make it like more understandable because everyone talks about big data, but most of it's in spreadsheets. You know what I mean? What we can do is actually make that, and we're even working with the Indonesian government to actually visualize their data better because they have a huge amount of data, but it's not visualized properly. And it's not easy to use if you can't. Our software, you can like find any specific place you're looking for in a city in like five minutes. Mm. Whereas, you know, that's not possible from spreadsheets. It's just, it doesn't get used properly. So a lot of this data collected is totally pointless. And that's why we're even working with the big boys like Buckler and hopefully soon GoTo and Bluebird, all these different companies. They have a lot of data, but it's not visualized in the way we do. Also, and we collect all the store data, small store data that Google do not have, for example. And we have a huge survey team, 8,000 people around Indonesia collecting the data on the small stores. Um, we have our own map. We don't use Google Maps, so it's, it's actually a map. And this is very important because the Indonesian government is very keen on Indonesia having its own map, and um, we're working very closely with the government also. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I mean, just, yeah. just to put, I'm the only foreigner in the company, so it's, it's a local company. We are not. We are a PT PMA. I am just basically originally my idea was to invest in the business and take a seat back, but actually I realized that it's not that easy. So mm-hmm. I, I basically involved myself because I have quite a lot of connections through my old job. And that's obviously my like, you know, bloody mindedness has, has pushed the business forward, even during COVID. Fantastic. Well, for our Indonesian listeners, here's an opportunity to check out, you know, what you guys are doing and see if it can apply to your business. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Right. So just, just quickly, there's been, there's been three things which we stand out and two of them Two, three bad investments, but the first two were just sheer rushing into things and maybe being too young to actually evaluate stuff. I bought a villa in Kosamui about when I was very young, my first bonus in work, and it was a total disaster, $250,000 down the toilet. And I invested in a bar in Kuala Lumpur, which was also a total disaster. And I trusted people who obviously, when I'm in, I was in Tokyo and Hong Kong, and they were just cleaning me out effectively. But they were, you know, spare of the moment, quick decisions, which, which were really stupid when I look back. And again, if things sound too good to be true, they probably are. That's what I would say. But my biggest investment mistake by far was um, 
was taking a mixed currency loan on, on property. I built a property portfolio when I was in Tokyo, quite substantially, you know, several million dollars. And I had three properties in London, basically over three million pounds valuation. I basically had to pay down quite a substantial amount because I was not living in London. I took a loan through a bank in Singapore, paid 30% deposit in the region of a million pounds. And what happened was I decided a good idea to save myself interest, to get myself positive cash flow. I borrowed the money in Swiss franc. Now, I'd actually reviewed this for 10 years with some very senior people, with, with for, not for 10 years, for 10 months, with some very senior people. And I wasn't the only person who did it. Quite a lot of people in the markets did it. We borrowed money in Swiss franc because the interest rate was about 1%. Back in 2007, 6, 7, the interest rate in sterling was 6%. The interest rate differential was around £100,000 a year saving. And that meant you could actually make a substantial revenue from your rental income. So you weren't, you, it, it all made sense at the time. And Swiss franc sterling had, had moved between 215 and 230 for the last 10 years. It seemed a very safe bet. Along came the financial crisis in 2008, 2009. Um, Swiss franc strengthened against sterling 50%. Margin call on line one, I suddenly owed the bank over three million pounds I borrowed. And I had to pay, to stop losing the properties, I had to pay in the region of a million pounds margin call. So it was a total disaster. I mean, not only that, it lasted it mentally. It took me five years to get out of this because instead of just biting the bullet in day one, which I probably should have done, I tried to manage my way out of it, paying mm. 100,000 margin call, 100,000 margin call. And it went on and it was, you know, it was it mentally quite ridiculous. For example, when Euro and the Swiss franc became unpegged, again, I just lost a couple of hundred grand in about 10 minutes. You know what I mean? So it was something which there was no end to it because because of the negative leverage kind of thing, I could lose far more than my capital. You know what I mean? So it was it was a huge mistake, even though I looked at it as like, and I, I can't blame anyone else. I was experienced financially. It was just, I actually reviewed this for a while. It wasn't a quick decision. But yeah, it was a risk that was, in the end, was a, was a terrible one. It lost me, in the end, after five years of hassle to get out of it, it probably lost me 1.2 to 1.5 million pounds. So um, I would call that pretty, uh, pretty much a disaster. Yeah. For, for a boy from Cumbria who started with nothing, it was a, it was, it was emotionally very difficult because for my, you know, my family and my friends, they knew everybody knows about this. You know, yeah. Yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's not a secret. I were in the office with my head in my hands. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was, it was nasty. And I'm not in there now. I, I bit the bullet eventually, but it, it took me five years to try to manage my way out of it before I bit the bullet. The banks were not particularly helpful based on the fact, you know, they loved me when I was, when I had, was considered a good customer, but straight as the currency went against me, they didn't want to beat me halfway at all. Uh, Even though my salary continued to allow me to make overpayments, I just got, I just had, they just told me, if you don't pay 200 grand by Friday, you're out of here, man. We were were taking the, you know, it was a disaster. Yeah. (laughs) And um, can you remember a particular day? when you really just kind of lost it or you realized that, you know, this was an all a loss or that, you know, emotionally you were at your bottom or maybe with your yeah. family, you were at your bottom. Like what, what was that day? I can remember it very well. We, 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 it was actually a, a few years later when after it happened, I was, I was thinking I was going to get out of this. It's slowly getting better. Okay. I'm going to lose five, 600,000. I don't want to think about it. It makes me cry, but I'm not going to lose what I thought I was going to lose. And we were out in a, 
I was in Hong Kong, I was with a friend, and um, they knew my position, and they, and they came to me and said, oh, look, Swiss Frank's moving a long way. Is this good for you? Is this good for you? Is this good for you? And I'm like, what? I looked at it, and it was the day that the euro unpegged from the Swiss Frank, and uh, if my friend is listening to this, they'll know exactly who it is. And I'm like, that's not good, no. And basically, it became unpegged, and it, it dropped like another 10% overnight. When, I mean, that to me was 300 grand. And I'd just been waiting months to get out of it, right? And it, I just realized this could, it's never going to get out of this. I'm just going to have to bite the bullet. It should, if I carry on like this, I'm going to end up in a mental state. And if I don't have this job, I can't continue to pay this anyway. You know what I mean? I, I'm lucky I've got a job that gets me out of this, but I ain't going to have this job forever because that, that whole market's becoming less as well. So, yeah, that was the day I just thought I've got to bite the bullet here and get my sanity back because this has gone on too long, you know? Mm. And I think, you know, that's the, uh, the benefit of this podcast. And my goal with it really is to explore that emotional trauma, basically, that can carry over in other parts of your life and all that to help people to avoid that. So let's talk about the lessons. How would you summarize the lessons that you learned from this? Don't be greedy. I mean, I mean, my, the other two things I mentioned, the Thai villa and the, and the, um, the KL bar, that was basic stupidity. It was too good to be true. I didn't do due diligence. I believe people who, when you look at, if I do any, take 10 minutes, you can do background to these people and yep. find out they're not to be trusted. So I'm an idiot for that one. The other one, I think, don't be greedy. I mean, I was sat on, you know, substantial assets at a young age. I basically could have quite easily had these properties going up in value in London with my rent mortgage covered and do very, very nicely, thank you with, you know, where my mortgage would be getting paid down and at the end of the day, I'd have all that money, you know. But to make an extra 100000 a year, I thought there was apps. I thought, well, I can actually save this on interest. What you don't realise is that 100000 when you're doing leverage on currencies, and that, that applies to all these people now doing futures and everything, if you're doing leverage on things like this, you know, you can lose that £100,000 in 10 minutes. Yep. So, you know, you're saving it in a year, but it's just pure greed because I just didn't need to do it. It was it was something that I didn't need to do, you know, and I, it was quite comfortable without that. I only had a 65 to 70% mortgage. I had the properties are in the best parts of London. I just thought it was just greed, yeah, basically. Yeah. And let me just ask you, where did the idea originate to do the Swiss franc? Was it coming from the Everyone, bank, no, from a I friend? It just made sense. Yeah. Everybody's talking Friends. about it. Yeah. A lot of people were doing it. I mean, okay. actually, the, the original thing people were doing in Japan when I was there, mainly in the financial world, by the way, the people doing it. These yeah. are not people who don't know what they're doing. They, it, I think that's the reality. A lot of these guys got greedy as well. You know, they had money and they got greedy. The idea was originally people wanted to do like yen loans because they were paid in yen, right? But the currency was so volatile. The currency was so volatile. So somewhere along the line, somebody decided, well, Swiss franc's not volatile, but yeah, but you're not getting paid in Swiss franc. And mm. the assets in sterling, right? So, I mean, it was massively underwritten by banks at the time. Yeah. And straight, straight as it went wrong, the banks, particularly the big RBS and people, they couldn't pull the plug on you quick enough, you know? Even though you were never a, a high-risk customer because they knew you could always fulfill your payments. Yeah. So let me uh, summarize what I take away from this. You know, one of the things is I like to always think when I'm investing or what, what and I'm doing business is what business am I in? So for instance, in my case with one of my businesses, a coffee business, you know, we're, we need to be in the foreign exchange markets to buy coffee globally. 
but I'm not in the foreign exchange business. And therefore, I'm very careful not to take a bet on a currency with that company. And what my takeaway from this is that when you're thinking about what it is that I'm investing in here, well, you're investing in London property, let's say, or you know, UK property. Yeah. And, and don't get confused with some kind of other investment, which in this case is an investment on the behavior of various currencies. I mean, when you think about it, it's a major currency bet that you would ne- I would never take that currency bet in the FX market. So why am I taking it against property? For some reason, you get mixed up thinking, oh, it's property, it's low risk. But oh, that's actually a three million, a two million, well, three million Swiss franc currency trade, which you would never do in your right mind. You know what I mean? So totally. you are, yeah, you're right, you're right. So separating it out and understanding where you're investing, where you're speculating, where you're hedging your position. The other thing that this reminds me of is the concept of you know, a natural hedge. And a natural hedge is when your assets match your liabilities in that currency. And so that's what you were talking about. You know, okay, if you're Japanese, if you got Japanese income and you have Japanese expenses, now you've matched your assets and your liabilities. But here you have a UK asset, sterling asset, let's say, that if you had, let's just imagine now, let's go back in time and say you went to the bank and say, nah, I don't need all that Swiss franc stuff. I just need, you know, pounds, a pound loan to then use that to buy a pound, you know, a sterling asset, let's say. How would that have changed the outcome of this? It changed you dramatically. I'd be sat on a property portfolio worth five million pounds with a loan now of around a million pounds. I mean, it would have changed it by a ridiculous amount. I mean, but the property I've I've sold in the end just to get out of the whole thing because I was I was tired of it. The property's worth a lot of money. It's in central London. Yeah, it, it would it's a huge difference. I mean, in the end, I lot I mean of course I got some money back because I put a lot of, not I didn't get much I got some back, but the properties had gone up in value substantially when I sold them. That's the only good thing about this, but I kind of got back what I put in. You yeah. know what I mean? So yeah. Yeah. it's a distinct difference. Yeah. You know, three million quid difference, I would say. Yeah. So so based upon what you learned from this experience and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Let's say that they are right now looking at buying that property and somebody's coming to them with a currency thing or they're in the currencies or whatever. What yeah. one action would you recommend? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, you're investing in property, which is a low-risk investment, which I was quite proud of myself, building up a property portfolio at a young age, thinking, you know, this is safe. I'm not going to throw my money away with dodgy advisors or anything like that. I'm going to focus on property. And instead of doing that, I went down the avenue of trying to do something else. So, yeah, as you say, I'm not, even though I, I understand currencies, I'm not watching it every day. And when you're doing that, you're not trading it. You're using it long-term. So things do go against you they go against you very quick and it's just it's just way way too risky so yeah property is a should be a you know it's a bricks and mortar as they say low risk investment don't mix that up because the amounts on property is way more than you would ever do on a currency trade so why are you you know if i said to somebody i've done this kind of currency trade people would think i'm crazy but it's exactly the same i've just done it on a i've just done it negatively i've Mm. done a negative trade which is a ridiculous amount of money and I, I don't know, looking back, I don't know what was going through my mind because I'm not stupid. I'm not stupid. I understand this. But I guess it was just people saying, oh, well, it hasn't moved for 10 years. Can't go wrong. Yeah. So what? It hasn't moved for 10 years. The mortgage was for 20 years. 
You know what I mean? Yep. Exactly. It, it, it was it was a stupid idea. It was yep. overall now, of course, it could have gone completely the other way, and I could have won. But yeah, that's that's like you know, that's like going to the horse racing or the casino. And that's I the was, idea of separating your investment. You know, fine if you want to bet on that currency, go ahead and separate that and put ten thousand dollars on it or whatever that yeah. is. You know, that's exactly uh, right. Yeah. You're basically investing in property, but you turn you're turning it from a medium low risk investment to a high, very high investment without actually really realizing it, which is really stupid based on the fact my background in finance, I understand this. And I wouldn't advise anyone else to do it. Yep. That's even stupider, right? So, yeah, it was and a it, risk I took. I don't blame it, anybody else, but stupid. It applies to startup too, because you can get seduced into going down a particular avenue that is away from your core business. And all of a sudden, you're taking a whole new risk. Well, I would say this is one thing why BBT has done well. Um, yeah, I, I have learned a lot. So I'm completely focused on what we do. Yep. I've got no VC investors. VC mm. investors want to come in and change my business. You know, them guys are, are looking, they're using other people's money. They need 10 in one results. I absolutely, you know, one in 10 results, sorry. Mm. Yeah, I'm very, in this business, I've got some very good staff, some very good management. We're very focused on what we do. There is no way, I'm not taking on any debt whatsoever. It's all basically my own capital and a few family offices that I know and my friends, close friends who completely know the risk and are very experienced in finance, like hedge fund managers, et cetera, yep. who yep. invested their, their own money in BBT. But it's very clear the risk. There's no, there's no, of course, there's BBT has risk, but no leverage risk, no, nothing like that, right? It's, yep. There's enough risk in a startup without borrowing money or chancing your arm and everything. I mean, we've negated a lot of the risk in this company, maybe because of my last experiences. Yep. Because, you know, when people come to me and say, oh, we can lend you this or debt financing. And I'm like, no, Friggy, no chance. Thank yeah. You. Thanks no, for the coffee. The, Got to go. The conversation. Yeah. No debt financing, not interested because actually um, we are fast growth, but we're not growth at all costs because, yep. the, you know, it's a different, this is my own money and my, my friends, close friends money. So yep. it ain't going to go the, the way of a lot of these startups, which I just like, you know, growth at all costs, borrow, borrow, borrow. Take more money, take more money. But if you take money from a venture capital, you've got to change what you've got to do what they say. And a lot of companies are pivoting from here and pivoting to there. But we know we've got a very strong business here. So yeah, certainly I've learned do not mix things up. Um, yeah, no debt. I avoid debt now at all costs, actually. Yeah, I used to think it was good to have debt because it was cheap. Yeah, yeah. I'm not really in that anymore. It's a good example of kind of bootstrap startup. And I think I think that's exciting. And we look forward to the IPO. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Yeah, continue growth, boss. I mean, we, we grew during COVID massively. I mean, we are, you know, last year we grew from 75 to 150 people. This year we'll grow to 250 people. BVT on proper metrics should be a $200 million company by the end of this year, mm. which is pretty amazing considering exactly. we've had no week. We had no VCs at all. And that's on revenue. That's not on the VC potential market size. That's yep. on our growth revenue. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we plan an IPO, probably not in the 12 months, but 24 to 36 months. And that'll be an IPO, again, not just like an investor's startup, like most of the startups is like the founder dumping their money. Because we're, we're very different. The founder and investor is the same in BBT. So we obviously are more careful over what we do. But mm. when it comes to an IPO... I've been involved with IPOs before, and I know a lot of the, you know, the potential. The problem with all the IPOs in Southeast Asia of the startups, they collapse because there's no sticky money involved. It's just startups dumping on retail. 
So yeah. I, I will bring I'll bring all the pension funds in, people I know, and actually try to do a real successful one. So that's in the next 36. But the next 12 months is just continued growth. I think now that we're seeing the back end of corona, it's a massive potential. I mean, yeah. you know, this has got me going again, really. I, you know, I was a bit, you know, after my losses and I left my job quite young and I didn't know what to do. And, you know, at 38, I basically retired and then I didn't know what to do. And then I, I'm into this now and I'm, I've never been so motivated. But, yeah, certainly don't want to make the same mistakes as before. You know? and, and let me ask you about the IPO for a second, because one of the questions I've, I've always dealt with as an analyst here in Southeast Asia for 30 years is that there's two problems. You know, one of the one is you're saying dumping on, you know, the, the founding shareholders dumping on retail. But another problem yep. is is not putting enough shares out into the market. So there's not enough volume trading in that particular stock. I agree. And so I agree. how do you balance these two? And, and what is, did you know the requirements, the minimum requirements in, in Indonesia? I think in Thailand, it's, very, it's, it's 15% or something like that. It's very low. But I mean, even when IPO, I plan to IPO and keep some keep substantial stocks myself. Yep. So it's um, basically, the, it's likely that I'll be dealing with Japanese institutions yep. who I know, or big Asian ones who I know, or big, you know, North American ones who I knew through my previous job. So most of those guys will not, they don't participate in IPOs when the founder dumps all the stock, right? Yeah. So that's part, that's part of the rule. But I agree, yeah, we would have to, you know, it'd have to be 30 to 50% of the business. The other issue is with BBT is because we have no VC, all my staff have shares. So they can then decide whether they want to take the money at that yeah. stage or keep the stock, right? But that stock. So basically the founders of all the staff in BBT still own around 70% of the company. Mm. So we've got a lot of flexibility over what we do. Yep. And, and a lot of the staff will want to get the money out because I've got staff who, who've got shares, you know, when we were like a $20 million valuation. So yeah. some yeah. of them some of them are young kids who can, you know, change their life on this. So, yeah, I, I think our plan is to do it professionally with quite a large amount of the shares. Me keep substantial shares myself, but it will be more doing proper roadshow, sticky money, None of this on retail or SPACs or anything like this because it's all the same. It just, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I've always been quite cautious despite that ridiculous thing I did. You know, when when people start talking about, you know, this fund makes 12% a year guaranteed, I'm like, that's mm -hmm. not possible. Mm -hmm. yep. You know, straight line graphs, I've seen so many blow up, right? Yep. Seen yep. so many straight line graphs blow up. There's so many going back years. You know, when people say you can't lose on crypto, you can't <laughs> lose, you can't lose anyone. Everyone here is doing futures to retail. Yeah. Futures is an experienced investor fund, but they're doing futures here is being sold to like girls in my office investing like just investing like a million rupiah, and then which, which is only like you know I don't know eighty dollars or something. But the problem is it's a lot of money to them, and then they end up owing a hundred dollars because of the you know because of the way they don't understand yeah. the leverage. Yeah. All they understand is oh gold goes up ten percent, you get back twice your money. But what they don't understand is the commission is like based on the leveraged amount, half of the money goes in day one. So so it's it, it's all linked, right? It's, yeah. it's all linked to trying to mitigate the risk now. So yep. yeah, proper IPO, proper involvement from people who are not pension funds. Hmm. Sorry, who, who are pension funds, but not, not to retail, yep. not to – it's a different model than the general startup. people that want to spin it. Yep. Fantastic. Yeah, it's a different model to the general startup. Yeah. Yep. Well, we look forward to it. Well, listeners, there you have it, another story of loss to keep you winning. If you haven't yet taken the risk reduction assessment, I challenge you to go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now and start building wealth the easy way by reducing risk. 
As we conclude, Martin, I want to thank you again for joining our mission, and you certainly have contributed to it. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, I mean, just, just yeah, everyone just be careful. If it does sound too good to be true, it probably is. You know, when you're promised the world and, and everyone's doing it and your friends, everyone's making money, ask yourself, do these people really make money? Because mm. if, and if they're making so much money, why are they trying to sell it to you in a bar? You know what I mean? If I have a great, I don't go around telling everyone how BBT is succeeding or trying to get money off people in bars for BBT. So yeah. why are people always coming up to me trying to sell me futures or cryptocurrency? You know, it doesn't make sense. You know, if it was that good, they wouldn't be having to constantly advertise and sell to me. So yep. if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And it Got certainly it. needs it certainly needs proper evaluation, not just yes. agreement. You know? Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying thank you for joining our mission, and I'll see you on the upside.